0: The first thing that they want to ask me after they stop staring is how it happened. How did you do that to yourself? At first, I told folk the truth. But when they looked away, I understood that no one cared what I said. They just wanted to hear that it was my fault, that I did something wrong because if I didn't, if this just happened to me, it could happen to them too. But I could not oblige because one does not simply grab an ax and cut off their own legs and replace them with metal. It's not done. And after, I remember thinking that getting rid of my arms, that too was a good idea, that metal arms would be far superior. And if metal arms, why not a whole metal torso? Only after I had removed my head and replaced it with a shiny new one fashioned of tin to match the rest of my physique. Then went to visit my lady fair and saw the look of horror in her eyes only then did I realize that I'd been bewitched but as she screamed and waved her hands about I understood as well that well that I didn't care about her anymore I wondered why Perhaps it was because i neglected to get a heart. Perhaps. But I did care. I do care about whomever bewitched me. Because it seems as if they've stolen something from me. Something that I used to treasure. And I want it back. So, I'm going to name this episode after myself. They call me the Tin Man. Snap Judgment proudly presents stories from people trying to find a piece of themselves. Because I have a feeling, can I say that, that I'm not the only one missing something. Do be careful not to veer off the yellow brick road. Terrible things have been known to happen when you're listening. The snap touching. much love to the Tin Man for taking the mic we do appreciate it my name is Glenn Washington and today we're gonna kick this Snap Judgment episode off the Tin Man episode we start down the road from Snap Studios where our guest, Dr. James Fallon studied some people who are missing some aspect of themselves and he spoke to our own Julia DeWitt to tell his story
1: fair number of the cases, because I didn't know going in uh, at all what who they were or anything. They were very violent murderers, and some were serial killers.
2: This is James Fallon.
1: James Fallon, professor of psychiatry and human behavior, University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Author of the book called The Psychopath Inside. It has a longer title, but The Psychopath Inside will get you there.
2: James is a scientist who studies the brains of psychopaths. He lives on a cul-de-sac on the UC Irvine campus. He married his childhood sweetheart. When I got there, he was preparing to go to a hockey game with his son. The people he studies feel a million miles away from here. For legal reasons, James can't reveal any details about the psychopaths, but some of them were famous for how heinous their crimes were. James's job was to get inside the minds of these killers.
1: I started receiving PET scans from the early 90s, and those included killers who were psychopaths. And uh, so I looked at them and then took uh, notes on what areas of the brain were kind of dysfunctional. Turns out that the psychopaths had this pattern, and I went, oh, man. It was like, you know, for a neuroanatomist like me, seeing patterns is everything. And so when I saw that, I said, oh, man, there's a pattern. Nobody had ever really talked about it.
2: Basically, what James saw were these big dark spots in the brain, places where there was little or no activity. These were the areas where things like moral reasoning and impulse control come from. The place where we manage our most base instincts. There were also dark spots where empathy originates. That sad feeling you have when you see someone you love cry. Psychopaths don't get that feeling. James studied these minds for years, piecing together this puzzle, finding patterns. Then one day, James was at his desk in his office.
1: I was sitting in my office at the medical school, and I was surrounded by piles of printouts, and the printouts were of different types of scans. All these analyses that i have been looking at of murderers.
2: James had a lab of techs and students working with him on this. And on this day, one of them came to his office with a PET scan. The tech was confused about something. His brain was supposed to basically be a healthy brain. The scan should have been glowing with activity.
1: And they're colored. They're, you know, they have red and they have blue and they have yellow, they have green. And a and buzzer went off and I went, oh man. And I called in the technician, there were two of them. And I said, this is, came out of the scanner, it's in the wrong pile. It's obviously one of the murders here
2: the scan he had in his hands had all those big telltale dark spots on it
1: and i told the technicians to check the machine and the provenance of you know the data as it got to me i said this is obviously from the pile of these murders of psychopaths it looked exactly like it it was just a pure case i said you got to check this out because somebody's walking around in society probably shouldn't be walking around a potentially very dangerous person
2: james peeled back the scan to find out who this person was
1: and I peeled back that last name, and, and, and it, it was my name.
2: The psychopathic brain belonged to James.
1: And I was, oh, ha, you know, that's
2: the joke is on me. James had used himself as a control in another study he was doing about Alzheimer's. His brain was supposed to be one of the normal ones. James's first instinct was to assume the pattern he thought he found was wrong. His brain was normal, so if it had those dark spots, then those dark spots didn't mean what he thought they meant. After all, James was a family man and an esteemed scientist, not a psychopath.
1: Basic part of uh, being a, a psychopath is you're a predator on other human beings. And that predation can take different forms. It can be by taking their life or sexually, you know, through rape and abuse and just using people and manipulating them. They can ruin people's lives. And that predation is done without a sense of conscience.
2: There is no formal diagnosis of psychopath in the DSM. But up until that day in the lab, James was sure he knew one when he saw one.
1: It's like art and pornography. You know, it's hard to exactly define, but you, you know, you get a marlin on, you know it's a fish. You know you got, you know you got a fish on. And you, you know, it's like, exactly when do you know? Well, you, you know, at some point, you know.
2: Unlike the guys he was studying, James didn't have a criminal record. He had no history of violence, and he certainly hadn't killed anyone.
1: I told my wife, I said, that's the damnedest thing. I said, I was, you know, looking at these scans, and ours came back, and I said, my scan looked just like one of these psychopathic killers. And she said something that was quite curious, I guess, at the time, even though I just laughed at that, too. She goes, it doesn't surprise me.
2: While I was interviewing James, his brother Mark walked into the house. So I asked him what he thought of the news that his brother might be a psychopath.
3: Well, it all started making sense.
2: To him, it also was no big surprise.
3: It's a game for him to manipulate a room and a situation. It was a game to him. And if you called him on it, and he would would let you see his eyes sparkle and... You know, he knew that the game had played out. You never get a feeling that he's trying to hurt people. You know, people do get, they do get hurt. And he just, he keeps moving on. And if he hears about it, uh, many times he, you know, he can justify it. And he can explain it in a way that it sounds justified. But he's just too smart. To, if, if you think you're, you're going to beat him at his game, you know, forget it.
2: As James continued to poll his friends and family, he started to get feedback he'd never heard before. He was manipulative, they said. He looked out for himself first. If you're crying and you need someone to feel bad with you, James definitely was not your guy. Everyone knew that.
1: Normally, when I'm hearing tragic stories and seeing terrible things, I, it, I'm not hit emotionally with it. But I'm interested in it, you see. It's, a, it's an academic thing. I just don't feel what others feel, it appears. People just... It's not just a matter of not doing bad things. It's if you don't have the capacity to really give them love that they expect. That's it's part of it, which I don't. My daughter said the same thing. My wife said the same thing. You ain't there, man. Now, if you look at the picture behind me on the wall, what do you see? There's two people that are painted there. Mm -hmm. There's one over there, and then there's this one. And... Or one daughter... She painted that many, many years ago. and That's me, and it's this dark character. I mean, look at that thing. See, she's known all along, right? And the other one is your wife. And wife yeah.
2: And that one's more of like a.
1: Will you describe that? One. Light. Well, it's light and bright, and it and and is a presence that's very uh, benevolent. This is a demonic character. So there are many things uh, that, in retrospect, add up to all of this, especially with my older brothers and. And friends, I put them in uh, lots of
2: uh, harm's way, you know. One of the best examples of this is when he exposed his brother to a cousin virus of Ebola. Not Mark, that brother we heard from earlier, but another one of his brothers. It's called the Marburg virus, and it's every bit as gross and terrible and tragic as Ebola. James was doing some research in Africa.
1: I was working at the University of Nairobi hospital that a guy had come in there just recently bleeding out from every, you know, his ears and his eyes and I knew where he got it
2: James suspected that it came from the bat dung in a cave on a nearby preserve when his brother came to town to visit him James thought, where better to take him than to those caves
1: I said, well, let's go on a safari he said, nobody goes here and I know nobody goes there because of what happened. And then went to the Keetum Caves, where I, I thought probably was there in the, you know, bat dung or something in the walls of the caves is where the virus was blatant. Turns out that's true. But I brought him to the caves. We went in there, and it was always, you know, elephant carcasses, bats, millions of bats all around this. And I just told him, I said, don't touch the ground.
2: What James did not tell him was that if he did touch the ground, he might die after hemorrhaging from every orifice of his body. Once he got home, James's brother realized where he'd been, and the relationship has never been the same. But when before this didn't mean much to him, now James saw his behavior as psychopathic. So because he was a highly achieving person, the type that when he goals he reached them, he set himself a particularly lofty new goal—to be a good guy.
1: I said, "What? You know, How's this? What, what do I do now?" Now I had to deal with myself. I said, "Okay, if I'm doing this," I said, "How do I treat my wife? Because I, you know, she likes half of what I do, and the other half she absolutely hates." Every day, all the interactions with her, without letting her know what was going on, I was—I just thought to myself, "What would a good guy do here?" It could be who, 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 do, who gets to pour the wine first, but also do I go to her aunt's funeral? You know, and after about a month of this and two months of this, I, I found out about hundreds of times a day I was doing the interactions. I was doing the most selfish thing possible.
2: James's wife was surprised and happy to see her longtime husband doing nicer things. And she didn't even really care that he was just faking it. But while she was loving his new generosity and selflessness, James wasn't having nearly so much fun.
1: It just slowed me down. I wasn't so glib or smart or like, da 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 da, da because I was thinking of this. When I actually thought, you know, how am I affecting this other person? And it was exhausting. And I said, well, I'm supposed to be exhausting me like a regular nice guy. And I was, you know, it's absolutely exhausting. Still
2: doing the good guy
1: thing now? I'm trying. Yeah, I try. I slip up every once in a while. I, I do. But I'm still trying, I got to, you know, write myself, okay, but absolutely exhausting.
2: While I listened to James talk, I felt an unexpected feeling come over me. That feeling was jealousy. Because here's the thing about being someone like James. Manipulating situations to come out to your benefit or for your own entertainment. Not caring about people's feelings. It may seem kind of monstrous, but caring, it's true, it takes up a lot of time and energy. Imagine for a second if you didn't care about your boss's disapproval. If someone's expecting you home tonight, what if his or her disappointment didn't scathe you? What would you do instead? You would do whatever you wanted, that's what. And if someone got mad at you, well, you wouldn't care about that either. But still, most of us, we do care because we have no other choice. James, on the other hand, can choose.
1: And, and and I in talking to this, this one psychiatrist, he goes, This is the problem. You don't care. You really, really don't care. You know what you are and you don't care. It's not a problem. I said, Yeah, I really don't. At the end I just didn't care. Maybe to some people it would seem this seems absurd, right? You I guess know?
2: I'm just trying to wrap my head around the experience of um. Of hearing, hearing that and then getting to know it and also knowing, you know, people saying that you're not there and mm-hmm. especially the narcissism. Like, for example, I got worried that I was a narcissist the other day. So I went and took a narcissism test online. I scored very low. It's like it was a very stupid test. Mm-hmm. But, it was, you know, I was just like, mm-hmm. what if I'm selfish? And that was really yeah. scary to me. I
1: mean, maybe that's what people do. Regular people, they think, what am I doing now? Is this going to hurt this other person's feelings? I, I don't think about that.
2: James continues to try to emulate generosity and kindness today. And at least when it comes to the small things, he's pretty successful at it. But he has a line in the sand that he will draw if the time ever comes. If ever making other people happy makes him less happy, that's it. The good guy game is over. He may try to do the right thing, but at the end of the day, there's no cure for psychopathy.
1: A long-term colleague of mine who was, I was very close to for many, many years had a memorial, and you had, it's a Saturday, and you have a choice between sitting there in a suit, coat, and tie and listening to a bunch of talks about somebody who's dead, okay? I just went down to Blackie's Bar down in Newport Beach and had a couple of beers and watched, watched some sports. But I said, the hell with it, you know? I'm not going to do it. I'll just do something else. And I'm smiling like I'm really happy about this, but it's just, I think it's so funny because it's just like, why you just are, that's you are. It was just too much work on a hot day to do the right thing. And I, that's, so I went down where there was air conditioning, you know, and a couple of beers.
0: Dr. James Fallon. He's written a book about his own experience as well as the science of the psychopathic mind. If you didn't catch the name earlier, it's called The Psychopath Inside. We're going to have a link at snapjudgment.org. The original score for that piece was created by Leon Morimoto and was produced by Julia DeWitt. Now, later in the show, What is it like to see everything while seeing nothing at all and grabbing at your lost self on the other side of a wall? When Snap Judgment, the 10-man episode continues, stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the 10-man episode. Today, we're featuring stories from people looking for a missing part of themselves. But what if you don't know that you're missing anything? Our own Nancy Lopez spoke to Tom Contis to find out his story.
3: I live in the middle of nowhere. I rarely see my neighbors, and uh, other than the neighbors that I see that I know, everybody else to me is a stranger. I'm ecstatic.
4: (laughs) A few years ago, Tom and his wife sold their home in LA, jumped into their RV with their two dogs, and never looked back. They crisscrossed the country three times over and landed on a 13-acre farm in Kentucky, their new home. They raised chickens and cows, they're starting their own organic farm. It's a quiet place. The view from their front porch is breathtaking. Endless rolling hills of luscious green pasture.
3: I'm not living with this fear sitting on my shoulder. I am more relaxed. I am more at peace. So I'm like Howard Hughes, I'm a hermit.
4: Tom embraces the isolation. It means he doesn't have to deal with anybody. As far back as he can remember, he's always stumbled through his interactions with people, be they strangers or loved ones, co-workers or acquaintances, never quite grasping what he was missing out on.
3: I think it was difficult to attach myself to people. I think it was difficult for people to attach themselves to me. You know, I'm different. I've always known I was different. I never knew why or how. I don't know. I felt like I wanted to go hide in a closet or hide under a rock.
4: The only ones he never had trouble connecting with were his kids.
3: My son was my world, came before me and came before anything. So did my daughter when she was born. She wasn't as skinny as Peter was. She wasn't as long and skinny, but she was little and she fit in my hand too. I didn't have time to worry about whether I fit or whether I didn't or whether I was this or whether somebody liked me. In the early 20s with two children, yeah, you know, I did the best I could with what I had.
4: But as easy as it was with his kids, it was impossible with his first wife. So the day before Christmas in nineteen seventy-five, Tom moved out. Then his wife moved to a different state to be with her new boyfriend and took the kids with her.
3: There was a, a good period of time where the only way that I could speak to my son was to call the school that he attended and the principal at the school would bring him into the office and I could talk to him on the phone. And...
4: and that worked for a while. But then during one phone call with his son, Tom learned that his wife's new boyfriend was mistreating his children.
3: Still committed to my children. I had a lawyer and we were going through a divorce and I asked for custody because I saw that they were in danger. Uh, and it was during that time that this incident occurred. In legal strategy, I had asked that there be psychiatric evaluations of both parents of these children and their stepfather, because their stepfather, I was certain, was you know, off of his rocker and was abusing my ex and my children. They agreed to the evaluations, and when it came time for those evaluations, I think I went first.
4: Tom went to the doctor's office. He didn't want to run into his ex-wife and her boyfriend, but he was looking forward to seeing his kids that day.
3: I'm sitting in the doctor's little exam room waiting for the doctor to come in, and the door was open, and there was a hallway, and there was a little blonde girl that was leaning against the wall, and she was crying. That's my daughter. She's crying. I have to help her. You know, and she's there, and she's, she's got her head in her arm. And uh, she had on a little dress, I picked her up and I hugged her, put her on my lap. She also urinated on me. Yeah, it was a, it was a very emotional moment for me. This is my daughter. I haven't seen her in three months. And she's crying. Oh, my God, I've got to take care of her. I told her everything's okay. It's going to be okay. The doctor came in and said, you know, let the kid go. I said, it's my daughter. Let the child go. I said, it's my daughter. He says, that's not your daughter. And I think at that point, I pushed her back and I looked at her. I think I was probably as shocked as the doctor was. He probably asked me to explain it, and I probably couldn't offer an explanation that was reasonable to him. I couldn't offer an explanation that was reasonable to me. You know, how does a father not recognize his child? You know, how do you pick up somebody else's kid and believe it to be yours and then have a doctor, a psychiatrist of all people? Say, that's not your kid. I, I never saw my daughter that day. Found out that the uh, stepfather didn't come for the evaluation. So, my plan as it was to have him evaluated to protect my children didn't work anyway. The report from the doctor, you know, was several pages long, but the conclusion of the report was he questioned my psychological attachment to my children period the handwriting was on the wall i wasn't going to get custody not in not in that day and age i messed it up i never got past the embarrassment i don't think i even told my best friends embarrassed beyond embarrassed ashamed you know how could i fail my children i've always tried to figure out what happened it's just, uh, there was never an answer.
4: Tom moved to California, where things took a turn for the better. His ex-wife called him with some good news. She'd left her boyfriend.
3: My kids were coming to live with me for the whole summer. They were leaving Oklahoma. They were coming to stay with their dad in Southern California. It was awesome. And uh, my son came to live with me full-time. And my daughter stayed living with my, uh, with my ex, I don't know what the logic behind her decision was. I was grateful. I was happy to have my son.
4: Tom was working as an insurance adjuster. He loved it. He could simply focus on the details of a car accident. When, where, how did it happen, what's the damage? Most of his interaction with people was over the phone. But every so often, he would suffer a social faux pas, like the time he was a speaker at an auto theft conference. He walked right past a police officer he'd worked with, as if he didn't know him.
3: Oh my God, that was investigator so-and-so from this agency, and we were working on this identity theft case, and it was a big case, and it involved a whole lot of people, and I just looked like an idiot. I think it caused fear. It, it, it was a latent fear. I didn't know it was there. But uh, I would be guarded in putting myself in positions like that
4: then
5: Tom met Lorraine. I was uh, working at the Holiday Inn near the Los Angeles airport. He came in and had dinner. And I was his server.
3: She was cute. <laughs> yes.
5: I think, it's, I think you only recognized me because there was only three servers. And I was the only girl. The other two were guys. We talked a little bit and we
4: made arrangements to go out the next night. And we've been together ever since. One Sunday night, when Tom was a couple of years into retirement, he and Lorraine were home, sitting in front of the TV.
3: And 60 Minutes was on television. They were showing these people who were unable to recognize and identify their spouses or their children. They They just didn't know who those people were.
4: The show was about a mysterious condition called prosopagnosia. It's about people who cannot recognize faces, it's not a problem with their vision. It has to do with how their brain is wired. Everything else functions fine, except their ability to process a face. So it's hard to form meaningful relationships. Hearing this struck a chord with Tom.
5: And it was like a light bulb went off. For
4: you? Yeah, for me, too. So they reached out to one of the researchers, who gave Tom a series of tests, and came back to him with the diagnosis.
3: I'm face blind. It's a, it's a stupid analogy, but it's almost like finding out that the aliens had come down and captured me and, and they were pulling the strings on my life and I was living a life that wasn't real. You know, My view of the world didn't match the reality of the world.
5: So, yeah, after seeing the show, it explained a ton, a ton about why he didn't know people. I think we went to go meet his sister for dinner someplace and we walked into the restaurant and I was walking right toward her and he kept asking me where she was. And I said, she's right in front of you. Granted, he hadn't seen his sister in a while, but I always kind of wondered, you know, how do you not recognize your own sister? You know, even when we're in a store, he doesn't always recognize me. Really? Yeah. We've been in Costco and I've been like,
4: Sometimes, and-, and
5: he'll look over and he'll be like, "Oh, oh, oh!" You know, it takes him a minute.
3: When I received the diagnosis and I discovered it, it, initially it was, I would say, almost euphoric. You know, I had an answer to how I mis- misidentified my daughter.
4: Do you feel that it almost absolved you of whatever guilt you carried about it?
3: Um, maybe. The truth is, I failed didn't do the right thing, did I? I didn't identify that girl. That's a failure. Um, I actually sent a letter to my ex-wife, my children, and my sister, apologizing. For? Being the way I was. You know, I always wanted inclusion, but uh, my behavior was exactly the opposite. It pushed people away, and I wouldn't let anybody close enough to be included.
4: His daughter's response to the letter was short and sweet.
3: She's awesome. She says, "Don't be so hard on yourself." I never got past the embarrassment. Till we talked, my daughter never knew. Now she knows. How
4: long have you guys been together right now? We'll be twenty-seven years this year. Lorraine knows Tom's idiosyncrasies probably better than anyone, and now she knows why they can't watch a movie together.
3: Yeah, you
5: know, actually, he will watch. A Bruce Willis movie, because it's Bruce Willis. He can focus on Bruce Willis. He looks the same. He never changes his shirt. It's always bloody and ripped. You bald. know,
4: yeah, bald. It's easy.
5: Yeah, and especially he doesn't have to worry about a change in hairstyle.
4: It took Tom eleven years to propose to Lorraine. He figured he'd wake up one day and she'd be gone. But he got lucky.
5: Here we are. No, still here. Still, here. <laughs> still telling you who people are. <laughs>
6: He says that I'm
3: nicer now
5: He's he's actually much easier to get along with Now Yeah Because he has a better understanding of Who and what he was And who and what he is now And it's given us an explanation So I'm more prepared When we're in a social setting You know, more prepared If we go to Costco Or go to the market I don't change my hairstyle in the meat department So he knows who I am (laughs) <laughs> or take my coat off <laughs> you know i keep an eye out for him
0: a very big thank you to tom contest and his wife lorraine for sharing their story and a big shout out as well to brad dushane the researcher who helped Tom with his diagnosis. The original soundscape for that story was created by Renzo Gorio, and the piece was produced by Nancy Lopez. Now when Snap Judgment returns, we pull apart the most powerful bond of all and see if it breaks. When Snap Judgment, the 10-man episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the 10-man episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're asking people with a missing piece to tell us what happened. And for our next story, we go back in Korean history, but start out at the dinner table. Mary Kim is eating dinner with her father, Chin-Kil, when he reveals a dark family
6: secret. When I was 12, as he was chewing into some roasted mackerel, suddenly his eyes began to well with tears. He said, My sister, this was her favorite kind of fish. He took a bite of mackerel and he said, Pook. She disappeared when I was 14. I I was stunned. Here was a ghost in our family. After he told me about her at dinner, he would include her during his very solemn and long thanksgiving prayers, the sister that that he so loved. It wasn't until much later that I realized that the reason why he'd never told us about her before was that she was North Korean. Many decades ago, when Korea was still unified as one country, my grandfather couldn't afford to send both his eldest children to school. And so chose his eldest-born son. That meant that Bo-Ok was sent to teacher education program in a remote country village. And she was not satisfied with that at all because she was number one in her class. Instead, she chose to go north where education opportunities were freer at the time for women. And then the Korean War happened. My father never saw her again. Then in 2005, the Red Cross offered my father, Chin-kil, the chance to see his sister, Bo-ok, for the first time in more than 55 years. Not in person, but via webcam. They would set up a video chat like Skype with North Korea on one side and South on the other. My father took his family members to a cramped hotel room in Seoul in South Korea. In the room was a video camera and a large screen. The family sat down and waited, making nervous conversation. He pulled out his letter. He spent months writing, organizing, and preparing his six-page letter that recounted everything he ever wanted to say. I had no idea how she might appear. I expected to see a living skeleton because of North Korea's tendency to starve its own people. This green flickers and the connection establishes and Bo-ok's face and that of our northern relatives. We see them.
7: na <laughs> Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sister, this is Jingil. Jingil?
8: Is that Liu <laughs> you? Yes. Good to see you. It's been so long.
6: Surprisingly, her cheeks were full. I noticed that she seemed to have a little bit of makeup on and had a lovely traditional garment on with silver beading which must have been expensive, unusual.
7: In preparation to see you, I wrote your letter. I uh, will read it first.
6: And then he launches into one of his oldest memories of her.
7: I don't know if you remember, but one winter night, we had a fight. So dad punished you by making you stand outside in the freezing cold. I felt sorry for you. So I tried to go outside, but mom and dad wouldn't let me. So I told them I had to pee. I remember how we were freezing together in the cold. I felt sorry about that. After you went to North Korea, I didn't realize that when we lived together, I never told you that I love you. That broke my heart. He could
6: barely speak. My father's not an emotional man. Until I was 18, he never told me that he loved me. On the southern side, of course, our, our shoulders were shaking. On the northern side, she was kind of, she was amused. It was a kind of, kind of um, slightly mocking, as if, hmm, look at what's become of you. That soft, that soft southern living. A traditional Korean man would never have said that. My dad noticed that, but kept on reading. But
7: even now, when I see high school students with ponytails in her hair, I am reminded of you. I find myself looking at those kids as if they were you. My memories are frozen at the time we last say goodbye.
6: When he spoke about searching for that ponytail girl, I understood my father in a way I hadn't before. What it must have been like for him to have four daughters and why he so insisted that we all get the best education we could. He wanted to give me what his own family never gave her.
7: About 20 years after your left, I went to the U.S. I took a mom and dad with me and take care of them. But they keep on wanting me to go back to Korea. Deep down inside, they must have thought you would escape North Korea and return home
6: one day. Mom cry every
7: night.
6: He reveals to her that he has four daughters, and only daughter. She jokes, rich in daughters, and everyone laughs.
8: <laughs> <Yeah>.
6: <laughs> and then she reveals that she herself has three daughters and two sons. But you need sons,
8: not daughters. You need sons to protect the country and reunite Korea.
6: Soon, my father's grand filibuster ended. Finally, his sister Book ok was given a chance to speak.
8: Well, younger brother, let me tell you about my life.
6: I remember we were so dirt poor. She spends the next only 15 minutes to my father's hour and 15 minutes to recount what has occurred in the past 55 years for her. Then the Korean War broke out. The
8: American bastards came to Korea and killed our soldiers in the streets. So I became a volunteer soldier and took care of injuries.
6: She started speaking about how the American bombs fell and took her leg.
8: I was so upset about that. Remember, I used to be the fastest runner in school. But then our great leader said, Don't cry. The American bastards are the problem, not your leg.
6: Then she married a man. And then more bombs fell from the American side, and then he lost both his legs.
8: But I made a family to him and gave birth to five children. You wouldn't be able to imagine what it's like for cripples to raise a family. One time I woke up, to find my first son with a severe virus, almost about to die. But my husband and I couldn't run him to the hospital. So our neighbor carried our son on his back like a horse and ran him to the hospital during the middle of the night. When our great leaders heard of our sick son, they ran over to the hospital and told the doctors, you need to help him survive. You need to help him. Once our nation is unified, he needs to take his parents back to their hometown. I was so moved. Such a good life in this socialist community wouldn't exist in a capitalist nation. 이런 현상은 아마 수수 없을 거야.
6: I couldn't tell if she was believing her own words. I looked to her eldest son, and unlike his mother's plump cheeks, his cheeks were cliff-like hollows. hollows.
8: I'm only alive today because our great leader's love and support. Love. I got everything in life I ever wanted.
6: The amount of swabbing and sweating that her eldest son was doing seemed to contradict her words.
8: We don't have many years left now. All I want is to see our country unified.
7: Yes, I believe that they will be here soon.
8: Yes, I do too. But we need to kick out the American bastards. We need to kick He them
7: held out. his tongue
6: mm. and he listened and to we her. Finally meet and live happily together. Yeah. She pauses for a moment and my father clears his throat and suggests Let's let's sing a song together. Yes, yeah, so what should we sing? Do you know we are one? It's one of the many anthems blending both the national anthems of both Koreas. Both North Korean and South Korean family members sang together in unison. My father, still full of tears, took up the words. Our hope is for one country we pray, even in dreams. The song began to come to its end. They were given a signal that the meeting was about to end. While they were singing, the screen darkened. My aunt's face disappears. It's been 10 years since that reunion. Thanksgivings are smaller now. My father's prayers are quieter now. His prayers are shorter. He prays for our family. But he never mentions her, no. I mention her. I ask him about whether or not she's still alive. He doesn't say. He lets a pause hang between us. He's very mm, resigned that he will never see her again, that she is that she is dead. It's me who hopes that who still harbors hope that she's alive. Paul
0: Thanks so much to Mary Kim for sharing your father's story. Mary Kim is a poet, a writer, and a professor at the Savannah College of Art and Design. We'll have a link to some of her work on our website, snapjudgment.org. Special thanks as well, Yongnam and Mikyong Kim, for being the voice actors for Chin Kil and Bo Ok. The original score for that piece was by Davey Kim. who was produced as well by Davey Kim. Oh, yes, Snappers. It's that time. Subscribe now to the Snap Storytelling Podcast. It's all there at snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, on Facebook, on Twitter. And know that Snap was produced by a team that is not in Kansas anymore. Who's that behind the curtain? The great and powerful Oz himself, the UBER producer, Mark Ristich. Starring Pat and C.D. Miller as the Scarecrow. Julia DeWitt as Dorothy. Anna, the Goodwitch Sussman, Nancy of the North Lopez, Davey, the Cowardly Lion, Kim, the Gatekeeper, Renzo Gorio, Joe Auntie M Rosenberg, our Flying Minions, Eliza Smith, Anna Adlerstein, Leon Morimoto, Teo DeCott, Jasmine, she's no Oompa Loompa Aguilera. And this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you and your little dog get sucked into a tornado spin round and round, land right on top of Dumbledore as he officiates a Quidditch match, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.